Just lift your hands to him and thank him for his provision. Thank him for his safety. Hallelujah. We bless your name. We bless your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you that in your presence there is fullness of joy. In your presence there are true pleasures forevermore. May we learn that there is nothing that this world has to offer that can satisfy the craving of man. It is in your presence that we find the rest we long for. It is in fellowship with you that we are satisfied forevermore. And I pray that we would even see that reflected in the message this morning. That, Father, you have gone to great lengths to bring us into fellowship with you so that we might, in your presence, discover the fullness of joy. That we may understand what true contentment is all about. That, Lord, nothing in this world, no relationship in this world, no activity in this world could ever ease the soul of man. It's only in your presence that we find true comfort and pleasure in Jesus mighty name and all of God's children said amen and amen bless his name this morning yes give him praise today bless God amen as you remain standing with me this morning I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians we're going to go back to Colossians this morning Colossians chapter 1 And we are beginning at verse number 12. And uh, for those of you that do not have a Bible, they are on the screen here. But if you have a Bible, please turn with me. Colossians 1, beginning with verse number 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith. If indeed you continue to be grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, what powerful words. And I pray, Father, that as we unpackage these words over the next several weeks, that you would reveal to us the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ that there is none like him there is none but him Jesus you have received preeminence in all things and we want to glorify you especially in this season as we remember what you did for us may you be glorified I pray in Jesus mighty name and everyone said amen and amen would you give the Lord praise in his house One more time. Bless his name. Bless God. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him. In Jesus' name. Well, last week we started a brand new series that we are going to be in 
until Easter. It's going to carry us through Easter. And we have simply entitled this series, None But Christ. None But Christ. And over the next several weeks, we are going to be examining, we are going to be exploring the fact that there is none other like Jesus Christ. We are going to be examining the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The word supreme literally means the state or condition of being superior over all others in power, authority, or status. And that is what the Bible is asserting to you and I today. That Jesus is superior over all others in power and in authority and in status. There is no one like Christ. There is no one but Christ. He is worthy of our praise today. It is impossible for you and I to even begin to calculate the impact that Jesus has had upon the world and is even continuing to have upon the world as we speak. No one has ever stepped upon the face of this earth that has been more important than Jesus of Nazareth. And it is certain that no one will emerge in the future that is of greater significance and compares to Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His life, His ministry, His signs and wonders, His miracles, His teachings, His death, His resurrection from the dead, even His promise to come again have shaped our views on women, on children, on the poor, on the needy, on the sick, on the dying, on the elderly. His teachings have impacted our view of marriage, of family, of education, of the arts, of government, of science. His life has even impacted the breakthroughs in the medical world and even the rise of the modern day hospital. All find their genesis in Jesus Christ or in his disciples who just took the teachings, the life and the ministry of Jesus to their logical end or their logical conclusion. Jesus Christ has changed the world that we live in today and he continues to change the world through men and women who are submitted to his presence and to his glory in Jesus' name. None like Christ. Can you say amen to that if you believe it this morning? None like Jesus Christ. And we need to understand, though, that as impressive as all of these things are, and they are indeed impressive, those who truly know Christ and have been transformed by His presence and by His glory would tell you that the real evidence to us um, of His greatness, of His supremacy, is not what He has done in the world, but what He has done in our lives. That we were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. In Christ, we have become new creations. The old has passed away, and everything has become brand new. Today, we would testify that the reason we believe that Christ is supreme is because we are saved from our sin, our hearts have been healed from brokenness, and today we are delivered from death, hell, and the grave. There is none like Christ who is worthy of our praise, and today we exalt His mighty name in Jesus' name. Can you say amen to that? Bless God. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Greatest question that you'll ever ask yourself. Who is Jesus to you this morning? Jesus asked his disciples 2,000 years ago, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is this morning? Who Jesus is and who you believe him to be is shaping the choices and the decisions that you make every single day. And as I said to you last week, with 100% accuracy, we can forecast your spiritual future just by ascertaining who Jesus is to you. What you believe Jesus has done. What he is doing even today. 
And that's why over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at who Jesus is through the lens that is provided for us in this letter written by the Apostle Paul addressing this very issue, who is Jesus? It's hard to believe, but this letter was written about 30 years after Jesus had risen from the dead. It was written in 60 AD. And so just three decades after Jesus' ascension upon the earth, men and women were already attacking the essential character and nature of Christ. As we said last week, if you can undermine Jesus, then it doesn't take long for Christianity to implode and collapse upon itself. And so initially, they began to attack Christ. And even today, men and women attack Jesus. They will openly say, I believe in God. But the real issue is, what do you believe about Jesus? Because Jesus did not just claim to be a prophet, a priest, or a king. He actually claimed to be God in the flesh. And that there was no way to the Father except through Him. So the real question is, what will you do with this man named Jesus? And Paul wanted to make sure that Christians then and Christians today would know exactly who Jesus was and who He is today for the glory of God. For those of you that might say, well, I don't know that this is really important. I mean, why are we taking time to really unpackage the identity of Christ? Is it really that important? I want to remind you what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24. In verse 24, he said, For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus made it very clear that before his soon return, there would be a great increase and surge of false Christ being preached by false prophets. And that this false message would actually be accompanied by lying signs and wonders. And that many would be deceived as a result of it. Because they did not know the true identity of Jesus Christ. Even the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 4, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul said, My greatest concern is that after my departure, in order to accommodate life as you want to live it, you are going to put up with and tolerate a message proclaiming another Jesus who is not the real Christ at all. And you're going to give way to that deception and be lost for all of eternity. Later on in that same chapter, he says, And it's no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Isn't that amazing? Satan is the prince of darkness. And yet we see that he has the power to transform himself. That word means to morph. He morphs himself into an angel of light. He disguises himself as an angel that is illuminating us to truth. You know, as I thought about the other day, um, I I was reminded of what Jesus said. You remember his teaching? He said, make sure that the light in you is not darkness. Here's that verse. He's saying that it's possible that the light you're living by is actually a satanic spirit that is giving you a false Christ and that you are not following the true Jesus that comes to us in Scripture. Folks, this is serious. We need to know that we are following the biblical Christ and that our understanding of Him is rock solid so that we would not be deceived in this hour, but we can say on Christ the solid rock I am found and no other sand will ever be able to sustain me. I am built upon Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Come on, say amen to that. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, last week we saw that Jesus is our deliverer. Paul told us that Jesus had delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and has conveyed us or transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. 
And now our lives are spent showing forth the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Today, we learn that Jesus is not only our deliverer, but Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is our redeemer. Now we know that, but do we understand that? He is our redeemer. Paul said in verse 14 of Colossians 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is our redeemer because it is in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, it is very possible before we get into this, that some of you have a translation this morning that does not have the words through his blood. And the reason that is, is because um, when that was added to the original King James Version by the translators to better reflect the teaching of Paul found in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7, which reads... In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. What happened is when the translators were translating the New Testament Greek manuscripts into the English and they came to what we know as the letter of Colossians, they saw that it did not include the words through his blood that he had written in a letter that was written the same time, the letter of Ephesians, and they noticed he didn't put through the blood there. So to clarify it, they just added that to Colossians so that there would be no confusion. It wasn't in the original manuscript, but they put it in there. They weren't adding to Scripture. They weren't taking away from it. They were just putting it there to clarify the issue. Now, some of the modern translations, they don't include that because they don't like to tamper. And I I get that. But I want you to see that there's no contradiction here whatsoever. That it is in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Did you notice there that Paul immediately shares with us that redemption and forgiveness are one in the same? He actually says... In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. So he's basically saying that forgiveness and redemption are synonyms. That they are really the same. To be redeemed is to be forgiven. To be forgiven is to be redeemed. And so you can use them interchangeably. And yet, as you study this, you realize that there is a necessary twist that is being introduced to us using different words. That even though they are very similar, there is a unique difference between the two so that you and I would have a much more responsible and complete understanding of forgiveness. That forgiveness is not something that came easily, but it came with a great price. Now first of all, as we break this down, we all have to understand this, that forgiveness is man's greatest need. Man's greatest need is forgiveness. Can you say amen to that? That is, that's a very weak amen. (laughs) Forgiveness is man's greatest need. No matter what you think today, forgiveness is man's greatest need because all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for that reason, forgiveness is man's greatest need. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now again, there are some people that would say, Pastor Kurt, you may think that that is man's greatest need, but it's not my greatest need. My greatest need right now is my marriage getting healed and restored. My greatest need is being restored to my children, being restored to my parents. My greatest need is passing the test I've got tomorrow. My greatest need is a financial need. My greatest need is an emotional need. My greatest need is a mental need. There are other things that I have need of. Forgiveness is way down the line. You know what Jesus would say to all of that? What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses? Loses his own soul. What Jesus would say in the modern day vernacular is, you can live in your dream house, drive your dream car, 
marry your dream spouse, have the dream family, have all of your bills paid, able to retire at 40 years old, have all the money that you want, have another house at the shore, another house in Florida or the Bahamas or Hawaii, you take your pick, and you have no problems, no struggles, you live a carefree life, you die a rich old man or woman surrounded by your family, he says, what profit would it be if you had all of that only to lose your soul for all of eternity? Folks, can I tell you, all the money in this world cannot buy your soul. That is why forgiveness is more important than everything else. Because forgiveness is the only way you can reclaim the soul that you have lost through your own sin and disobedience. uh, Forgiveness is by far the greatest need of all mankind. Forgiveness. And forgiveness is through Jesus Christ alone. We have all sinned. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. To sin means that we have all rebelled against God. We have all rebelled against God's law. You didn't even need me to tell you that. Your own conscience bears witness that you have sinned against God. Because God wrote his law upon your heart and gave you a conscience to bear witness when you have failed the Lord. So all of us have sinned. But we have also fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? When you hear that, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, really, you could say it this way, that all of us have not only transgressed willfully God's law, but we have also fallen short of living for God's glory. We have fallen short of living a life that glorifies and magnifies Him. Let me illustrate it to you this way. None of us in this room did anything to earn life. You're not here today by choice. You you didn't earn your life. You didn't deserve your life. Your life is a result of a precious mother and father that decided to have children one day. Many of you know I just celebrated my birthday last month. The day of my birthday, I called up my mother and father and said, thank you. And they said, for what? And I said, because I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for you too. You gave me life. You know, it's so funny that we honor people on their birthday. We should be honoring the mother and father of those individuals because they're the ones that life came through for the glory and the honor of God. Can you say amen to that? They're the ones, you know. We all take a bow on our birthday and all I did was just show up, you know, I... Mom and dad had me, you know, so I thank them. And you know, at a very young age, it just came to me, I can't live my life for myself. I want to live my life in a way that honors my mom and dad. You know, they're the ones that gave me life. I want to live my life in a way that honors their values, that honors their name that honors who they are. I don't want to bring any reproach to them. I want to live my life, yes, but I want to live it within the context of my mom and dad who gave me life. I want to honor their values, what was important to them. I want to make sure that I bring no reproach to their name and to their reputation. Well, if I can feel that way for my mom and dad, I can certainly feel that way for God because ultimately God is the one who gave me life. Can you say amen? I didn't do anything to earn the right to be here. I didn't do anything to deserve the right to be here. God gave me life. And it was for His pleasure, the Bible says, that we were created. And so to give glory to God is to live your life in a way that reflects God. That honors the Lord. And that is why we live, to literally walk in a way that honors his values, that honors his laws, that honors his heart, that honors his great name. And in that, all of us have sinned. And all of us have fallen short of giving God the glory. And God has seen to it that the only punishment that is fitting for those who break his laws and dishonor his life And his name is death. That is not just physical death because even believers physically die. It is appointed unto man once to die and then after that the judgment. No, this is spiritual death. 
The Bible calls it second death. It's also known as separation from God for all of eternity. You know, you have to be very careful when you talk about separation from God because some people do not think that that sounds like a bad deal. You know, they say, well, you know what, I I don't even live for God now. What is separation from God going to mean to me in eternity? I mean, I don't have any relationship with him now. I don't even know if he exists. I don't believe he does exist. So if he does exist, being separated from God is not a really big deal. Well, first of all, you're not technically separated from God here because the Bible says in him we live and move and have our being. So just by virtue of living in this world, you are in the presence of God. So no one here has ever really known what it's like to be separated from him. But God says that there is a place on the other side of the grave where he has removed himself completely and you are separated from God. And Jesus himself, because most of the teachings about hell come from Jesus. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else did. Jesus spoke more about hell and eternal separation from God than he did heaven. And, and, and Jesus went out of his way to use very descriptive language to convey just how horrible separation from God really is. He used words like unquenchable fire. He talked about worms never dying. Um, he, he talked about the torment um, of hell. He talked about it being a place of weeping and wailing and grinding of teeth. It is a place where there is unending unimaginable pain and suffering and torment for eternity. And you know what hit me the other day? Kathy and I were out with another couple this weekend, and I was sharing with them. And we all know this, but we just don't say it very often. And I understand why. It's not something that you just want to casually talk about. But not only is hell or separation from God eternal, But its pain and sorrow and torment is uninterrupted. Now just let your mind go with me for a moment. Not only does the torment never end, it never relents. It is uninterrupted. It is a continual suffering. There is not one moment where there is a little relief. It is constant unending, uninterrupted sorrow. After you've been there for two million years, there is, you are no closer to getting out than you were when you started. There's no end to it. And the suffering has been continual and it will continue forevermore. You know, this is my personal belief. I'm not telling you that everybody believes this way. But as I study what Jesus taught about hell, because he talked about it being a place um, of utter darkness, I personally believe that there is no association in hell. There's no relationship. You know, you hear people say, I don't believe with all my friends there. Well, you may, but you'll never know they're there. I don't believe. People say, you'll hear the screams of millions and millions. I don't believe that. I believe that hell is is complete separation from all association. You'll never see your family again. You'll never see anyone again. The only cries you'll hear for eternity are your cries. The only screams you will hear will be your screams. There's no association. It is utter darkness. Because if there was association, just having someone there sharing the pain with you would make it a fraction more tolerable. You'll be all alone. And that is horrifying. But more horrifying than that is the fact that that sentence is upon all of us. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter how good you and I think we are, that sentence of death is upon all of us because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for that reason, there is nothing that we can do to make it right. 
There's nothing at all that you and I can do to repair that. And that's where everybody gets a little bit defensive because we all think that there is some way I can rectify this situation. That there is some way that I can repair the damage that has been done. I'm the one that got myself into the mess. I'm the one that can get myself out of the mess. But there is nothing that you can do. Criminals do not tell the judge what they're going to do to make it right. They, they throw themselves at the court. The court is the one that makes the decision. A criminal doesn't say, this is what I'm going to do to make it right. There are a lot of people that they just say, you know what, Pastor Kurt, I believe this. I'm a pretty good person. Good by whose standard is where I would go with that. I mean, whose standard are you going by? Well, I just believe that if I live a good enough life, well, what's good enough? What, what, what standard are you going by? I just believe that if I live a good enough life, if my good works outweigh my bad works, then I'm in like Flynn. That everything's great, I'm going to get into heaven. Well, just how many good works do you have to do to make up? I mean, you don't even know that. What, what, what are you basing that on? I just think if my good works outweigh my bad works, that I'm going to be fine, that everything is going to be wonderful. Is that really how the world works? We have a police officer here. Maybe we should ask him. When they pull someone over, you don't walk through that and say, well, listen, I know I broke this law, but look at all the laws that I've kept. They're going to look. I don't care about all the laws you're keeping. I'm only concerned about the law you've broken. You've broken the law. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with Almighty God. That is an impossibility. God requires man to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others if they love themselves. And that is consistent, that is unending. So if you're going to be right by the law, that means that you cannot break it one time. If you do, you're guilty we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing we can do to make it right. The only hope we have, the only hope, is if God would be willing to forgive us. That's the only hope we have. Is if God would some way be willing to lay aside the penalty that is due and actually forgive us of our sin. Well, that's good news today. And I know right now you're waiting for the good news. Like all that we've talked about is not good news, but it's all on us. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We've lived our lives for ourselves. But the good news today is that God has shown us in his word from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, that God's preferred method of dealing with sin is forgiveness. How many of you are thankful that God's preferred method of dealing with your sin is forgiveness? Amen? That's, come on, I can get a better amen out of that. I mean, that's his preferred method, is forgiveness. He has shown that he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and be reconciled to Almighty God. That is his preferred method of dealing with sin. I love the fact that there were many times Israel would go into battle with nothing but this praise upon their lips. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Yes, his wrath is for a moment, but his mercy never ends. He is a gracious God, a loving God, and he has shown over and over again, regardless to what you've been taught, regardless to what popular opinion is, God is not a God of wrath who sits up there just waiting to pounce on men and women. He is a tender, loving Father who is willing to forgive you no matter what you've done in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, give Him praise for that this morning. Praise God. And Paul reflects that in the word forgiveness. We've received forgiveness. Now, Forgiveness is, man, I, I could spend a whole day on this. I could spend a whole day on just about anything with God. But, but 
I, I love forgiveness. And as you study it throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are many Hebrew words, many Greek words that they use to try and convey this idea of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Some of my favorite are the ones that speak of him blotting out our sin, which literally means to rub or the idea is being to erase it. That God erases our sin so that there's no memory of it ever being there. That you are treated as if you never sinned. Can you believe that? That God would forgive you so incredibly that, that there's no memory of your sin and that he treats you as if you never sinned against him in the first place. What a great God we serve. Amen? Amen. That's God. But, but the word that Paul used here for forgiveness in the Greek language That's why you have to study some of these words. The word that he used here, it meant specifically sending away. Sent away. That's the word that he used. Forgiveness is God sending our sins away. It is God sending them away, never to be brought up again, never to be remembered again. They're sent away. God is no more inclined to punish us then a parent is inclined to punish their own child. Listen, if you are worth your weight as a parent, your first inclination is never to punish your child. Your first inclination is to show mercy. Come on, I can't be the only good parent in this place. I mean, I never got any joy out of punishing my children. Never. I I repeat what my parents said, and at that point it seemed bogus. Now I get it. You know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Remember that? When you heard it as a kid, you're like, yeah, let's change positions for a minute. You know, let's see if that's really true. But now as a parent, you understand that. My first desire was not to punish my child, my children. My first desire was to forgive them. I wanted to forgive my child. And you know what? The same thing is true with God. God wants to forgive us. His preferred method is to forgive. It was never God having to be appeased at all so that he could be rendered forgiving. God was always forgiving. But, how many of you know there's always a snag? But, forgiveness can be messy. Forgiveness can be very complicated. I don't know if I should ask for a show of hands on this. So to be safe, don't raise your hands. But just answer this within your heart. I'm not saying that to be funny either. But how many of you have ever forgiven someone for what they've done to you? And rather than them being humbled that you would forgive them, it actually caused them to become more proud and they went back out and did it again then you understand how complicated forgiveness can be. Because there are times when you can't just forgive and lay aside. You've got to bring down the hammer, so to speak. It's, it's very complicated. When you start working in mercy, it can make things difficult. There's a great verse in Proverbs. It just came to me this morning, so it's not on the screen. But Proverbs 19, 19, you can read it later. It says, a man of great wrath will suffer punishment. For if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. What he's basically saying is, if you keep delivering an angry man from the consequences of their anger, all it's going to do is embolden them to keep being angry. That the best thing you can do is give an angry man over to the consequences of their anger so that maybe in the consequences, they'll realize, man, I can't keep doing this. Maybe. And what's true for anger is true for anything. If you deliver men and women from the penalties of their transgressions, typically they'll keep on doing it. And that was what was facing God. God said, if I forgive them and I lay aside the penalty and there's no death that comes, it's going to make them proud. Whenever you freely forgive and lay aside punishment, you run the risk of making matters worse. And any parent will tell you that. Those of you parents who think, you know what, I don't punish my kids. They're a free spirit. They can learn. Let me tell you what. Let's just experiment something. Never punish your child. 
Never let them experience any consequences. Deliver them from all the consequences they ever experience. And then I'll check back with you in 18 to 20 years. And I'll see how that's working out for you, okay? You will create a monster if you never punish your children. If I didn't punish Josh and Amanda when they were young, then you know what I would be doing? I would actually be assassinating my own character. Because how will they ever trust my word if I tell them, do that again, I'm going to spank you. Do that again, I'm going to spank you, but I never do it. Eventually, what am I telling them? Dad will not keep his word. It doesn't matter what he says, I will not believe him. If I never punish my children, they will not respect me. They will not respect laws. They will not respect others. They will only consider themselves. And they'll do what works for them. If I never punish them, they'll never sit down and consider their ways. If I never punish them, they will never consider that there is a better way. They will just live for themselves. And can God forgive and not make matters worse? See, we just, like, you've probably heard people that say, I just don't know why God just didn't forgive us. I mean, why did Jesus even have to die on the cross? And it's because they misunderstand this point. If God had just simply laid aside the penalty, because he said, the soul that sins will die. If he laid that aside and just forgave us with no punishment, then why would we ever believe his word? Then why would we ever respect him? Then why would we ever fear him? Why would we ever think that his law is good? What would ever make us step down and say, i got to reconsider my ways? And besides all of that, and there's so much, I mean, what would keep us from sinning in the future? If there was no punishment, we would just keep doing it. Why would I ever stop something that pleases me in the moment if there's no consequences to it? So what would ever get me to stop these things? What's going to keep my heart from becoming more proud? It was my proud, it was my proud arrogant heart that got me to sin against God in the first place. How much more proud do you think I'm going to be, be if God just says, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, and there's no, there's no sacrifice, there's no punishment. Besides that, can God be just and forgive? You do know why we pay judges. We don't pay judges to show mercy. We pay judges to punish lawbreakers. Now, we expect them to, to be just, but we don't pay judges to just exonerate all of our criminals and let them go. Can God be just and forgive? God's not only a heavenly father, he is the king of all kings. He has a moral obligation to punish those who break his law. If he lays aside the punishment, just forgives. Can he be just? See, we don't think about these things. We just think, oh, God, forgive me. We never think of the complications. Forgiveness is messy. It's complicated. The only way, the only way that you're going to be here late, so I just want you to know that right now. (laughs) The only way that God could ever justly forgive us is if he came up with a substitute for the penalty of death. Because he has a moral obligation to punish sin. So the only way that he could justly forgive the guilty is if he came up with a substitute that would allow him to freely forgive the guilty but still execute the punishment. How do you do that? How do you come up with a penalty that satisfies justice but lets the guilty go free? How do you do that? This sacrifice would have to be so awesome, so mind-bending, so just extraordinary that it would have the same effect upon our heart that the literal punishment would have had. In other words, the sacrifice would have to cause the guilty to say, oh my, how could I keep living like this? How could I keep living this way? It would have to have such an effect that we would do all the things we just mentioned. It would make me be broken of my pride and my arrogance. But it wouldn't happen to me. It would happen on a substitute. That's reflected. And that's why Paul didn't just speak of forgiveness. 
but he introduced us to the first word, redemption. Because redemption means a price for release. A price for release. Or you could say the price for release. What he was saying is forgiveness is given at this cost, at this price. See, forgiveness is about sending our sins away. Redemption is about the price it cost to have our sins sent away. And Paul was saying, I never want you to think of forgiveness apart from the price that was paid for it. Because if you only think of forgiveness, then you'll feel emboldened to keep sinning. But if you know what went in to your being set free from sin, it will grip your heart. God wanted to send our sins away. But he knew that in doing it freely and laying aside the penalty, he was actually going to bring ongoing, unbridled, uninterrupted sin into the world that he loved. So he had in his divine wisdom to come up with a sacrifice, a price for the release of our sin. Now in the Old Testament, that was temporarily dealt with in a very elaborate sacrificial system. A very elaborate sacrificial system. And it's actually reflected in the word that Paul used for forgiveness again. Sending away. Now to you and I as Gentiles, that really doesn't mean much. Except we just kind of get this visual of our sins being sent away. But a Jewish audience that he was writing to would have immediately picked up on what he was saying. Because in using that word, sending away, it immediately took them back to the most holy, the most sacred, the most solemn day on the Jewish calendar. We know it as, the, as Yom Kippur, but it is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the day that God's forgiveness was given to all of Israel for their sin. Now just bear with me for a moment, okay? On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come with all of Israel. All of Israel came. They came to the tabernacle first. They came to the temple later. But they would come to worship the Lord on this Day of Atonement. The high priest had been chosen by God to represent the people, to mediate between God and man. And the high priest would sacrifice a bull for his sin and the sin of his own family. He would sacrifice it, he would take the blood of the bull, and he would go into what was known as the Holy of Holies. Now, I can't get really detailed here. I'd like to. The Holy of Holies was a holy, holy place that only one person was allowed to go into once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go in to this holy place, and in there would be the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody knows the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones, but every, like everyone knows the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a real thing. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box overlaid with gold, and it represented the presence of God. It wasn't the presence of God. It represented the presence of God. And God manifested himself there. Inside of this Ark were several items. One of the items was the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that prove all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the Ark of the Covenant, it shows us that these laws came from the heart of God. They were good by nature. But they stand against us. They show that we have all sinned. But such was the grace of God. you got to love this. That God instructed Moses to make a cover for the Ark. It was called the mercy seat which also means atonement, which also means cover. It all is the same word. But he covered the law with mercy. How many of you are thankful that God covered the law with mercy? Amen. Awesome. Don't you love how the word of God just unfolds like this? So he covers it with mercy. In fact, he actually said, I'll meet with you there. How many of you are glad that God meets us in mercy? Amen. So 
So he comes up with the blood of the bull and he sprinkles that blood on the mercy seat. Why? The covering is forgiveness. The blood is the price that was paid. It was symbolic. What God was saying is, I have to satisfy my wrath. I have to. I have an obligation. I'm a moral governor. I have to punish sin. But I'm not going to do it to you. I'm going to punish sin on this animal. Because animals have no consciousness of sin. They're as sinless as you could be. They don't know what sin is. They don't know good. They don't know evil. So he says, I'm going to, I'm going to satisfy wrath in the animal. Shed its blood as a symbol of death. And I'm going to sprinkle that blood on mercy so that you would know that even though forgiveness is freely given, it wasn't free. The sacrifice had to pay for it. It was meant to grip their heart. Now, listen, it goes a little further than that. He would leave. He would go back out. He had two goats. He would sacrifice the one goat take the blood of that goat, go back in, sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat for the people. This is for the people now. Then he'd come back out. He did something really neat. He went up to the living goat. He put his hands on the head of the living goat and he confessed all the sins of Israel. He put it on what they called the scapegoat. And then after he finished, he would give that goat to a designated individual And then that designated individual would take it out into the wilderness as far as the camp that they could go and they would release it, sending away the sins of Israel. Sending them away. That's why Paul used that word specifically, sending away. Because he said, I don't want you to ever forget that the sending away of your sin came at the cost of sacrifice. It was meant to make an impression. It was done publicly. Kids saw this. Everyone watched because God wanted them to have that etched in their mind so that when mom and dad are walking home with the kids and the little kid said, Mom, why did he kill that lamb? Why did he slit its throat? Why was its blood spilled? And then dad and mom would say, Kids, your God loves you enough to forgive you. But if he just forgives you, then you'll never understand how serious sin is. So he poured out his wrath upon the animal so that you would remember that the next time you want to sin. And say, how can I keep doing this when it costs an innocent animal its life? It was meant to show us God keeps his word, that sin is dreadful and it takes a lot to cover it. It was meant to subdue their hearts so that they would not think that they could endlessly sin. I'm thankful that our sins are sent away, but it came at a price. Now folks, listen, you and I all know that the blood of an animal could never really satisfy the justice of God. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, when he came into the world, Jesus said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. When Jesus stepped onto the earth for ministry, his own cousin, John the Baptist, saw him coming to be baptized, remember? Do you remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even then, Jesus was taking the sin of man upon his holy heart. For 33 and a half years, he lived a sinless life. And then he was falsely accused of crimes and blasphemies against God. He was proven in a court of law to be innocent, a 
of all the charges, but he still was sentenced to die as a criminal on the cross. And God the Father saw that as sufficient of covering his obligation to moral justice and now says, if you will come to me through the Son and confess your sin, I'll be faithful and just to forgive, to send away your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What was the price for our release from sin? The blood of Jesus Christ. That's why he said, yes, you've been forgiven. Your sins have been sent away, but it came at a price. What was that price? His blood. Jesus didn't just make an offering for us. He was the offering. He didn't just make a sacrifice for us. He was the sacrifice. He is our Redeemer in that with His own blood, He has released us from our debt of sin and has given us everlasting life in Jesus' name. So the next time you say, He's my Redeemer, I pray that you would have that thought within you. Yes, you've been forgiven, but it came at a price. Yes, He freely forgives you, but it wasn't free. And He brought both of those words. That's what we got to remember, is that He brought both of those words in so that we would never look at forgiveness without looking at the sacrifice. So that we would never treat it with contempt. God would never have provided a means for forgiveness that would empower us or embolden us to keep sinning more and never understand how destructive it is. In offering His own Son as a sacrifice, God was actually showing us that sin is a dreadfully, dreadfully serious matter and it takes serious intervention to deal with it. It teaches us that God hates sin. He hates when we watch it on TV. And that if fellowship with God is truly going to be restored, then we must not only confess our sin, but say, I'm through with it. Because there is no fellowship with the sacred and the profane. It was meant to humble us, to recognize that we have sinned against God and that we cannot continue in this. The thought occurred to me the other day, forgiveness without sacrifice is permission. If God had offered forgiveness without the substitute, He would have been sanctioning continual sin. He would have been giving us permission. But by sending His Son, He said, Stop! Think about what you're doing. My Son died for that. How can you continue? It is irresponsible for you and me to offer men and women forgiveness without properly showing them what Jesus did to give them forgiveness. We just treat it like it's nothing. The cross was there so that we would stop and say, how can I continue to live like this? Knowing Jesus died for me so that I could be forgiven of it. I hope, if anything, today that you would leave here with a greater appreciation of forgiveness. That it was not just a casual exchange. You know, I, I hear, you know, like, have you ever heard somebody just say, who are you to judge me? I've been forgiven. Are you sure about that? You do know that just because you ask for it doesn't mean you get it. You do know that, right? Just because you ask Him for forgiveness doesn't mean... God is looking into your heart. He's looking into my heart. He knows the one who is asking forgiveness simply because they don't want penalties and the one who is broken and says, I want to be through with it. Forgiveness is never offered to people that are not through with sin. No more than a judge would show mercy to a criminal that has no intent of stopping what they're doing. 
God extends forgiveness to those who want to be through with it. We can't treat it casually. As a parent, there were very few things that angered me and grieved me more than when I felt my children did not appreciate the sacrifices I made. Uh, Do we have to go there? They didn't appreciate the money I was putting out or the time I was giving. They didn't appreciate it. They treated it with contempt. How does it make God feel when we just treat forgiveness as if it were nothing with no consideration of the price that was paid? Folks, let us rejoice today that he is our redeemer. That what we should have gotten, we didn't through the blood of Jesus Christ. But may we not just wallow in sin with no thought, but may we be captured by the price that was paid and live a holy life in Jesus' mighty name. Come on. Give him praise. Can we stand to our feet this morning? That's, we're done. Can you lift your hands to the Lord? And can you seriously for a moment give him the praise that he deserves for what he has done? Lift those hands that he gave. Lift that voice. Don't do it silently. He's worthy of your voice.